scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. That is 1177 in your Black Pew Bible. First Timothy chapter two, verses one through eight. First of all, then, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper, proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy, holy hands without anger of quarreling. But I, as we, Jeannie and I, we were overseas, we came back to the States trying, I think it was during the time we were trying to figure out how to get back overseas, we ended up at the Lindley House um, trying to, uh, or talking about missions, Brian is a part of a missions organization called Catalyst and we were getting information about that ministry and um, got to know him better there but of course they've been here at our church for some time and we're excited uh, Brian's going to come and teach us this morning from 1st Timothy let's pray and, and I'll ask him to come on up and teach us this morning father we are thankful that we get to hear truth we get to study father we know you're going to give us grace to apply it to our lives father we acknowledge we're not as dependent on you as we should be so father will you bring conviction empowerment encouragement this morning through the preaching of your word pray for brian that you would use them give him clarity of thought in jesus name amen Good morning. Thank you, Pastor. Shane did that introduction so I would not forget to dismiss the kids. And I appreciate that very much. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Jenny, for the, those songs which go along so well with our, our message this morning uh, on prayer. Pastor is blessed to have this pulpit. This is a great, whoever built this should get a medal. I, I used to preach at a church plant. I had to preach off of a music stand like Jamie uses. And my Bible's so heavy, by the end of the sermon, it'd be down by my knees because it just sink down throughout the message. Um, this morning, as we continue our study of Paul's letter uh, to Timothy, we come to these instructions in chapter 2 on prayer. Prayer is uh, it's a curious thing because almost every Christian will confess both the importance of prayer and also how often they neglect to pray. Uh, Lifeway Research 
did a survey where they asked Protestant pastors in America, these are pastors of Protestant churches in America, what are things in, in your spiritual life that need to be addressed? And 72% said consistency in personal prayer. I know, I know this preacher needs consistency in personal prayer. What about you, pastor? Do you need more consistency in personal prayer? We do. Most of us do. Uh, prayer is an issue and a struggle for most Christians and for most churches. And, and even when we do pray, it's alarming how often our prayers don't reflect, really, uh, the prayers from Scripture, what's in the Bible. Um, Another survey LifeWay did on prayer, they asked people who typically pray, Americans who typically pray, what are things that you pray for? Uh, 21% said they've prayed to win the lottery. 13% said they have prayed for their favorite team to win a ball game. How many here were praying for a certain team to make a field goal last year? Were you praying more? Were you praying? <laughs> People said they prayed for a parking spot. Actually, I've prayed for a parking spot. Uh, God provided, he provided a really good one too. Um, 20% said they prayed for something that they, they prayed for success in something that they put absolutely no work into. <laughs> Students, you pray for tests that you didn't study for. Um, you know, lower down on the list, but, but still, like, at 5% were people who prayed for someone's relationship to end or someone to get fired or for success in something that they knew would not please God. That doesn't even make sense. You're going to pray to God for success in something that you know doesn't please him. Those are terrible prayers. Um, they're... they're focused on self. Often many of our prayers are they're focused on ourselves and they have no connection with God's kingdom or his promises in scripture. Um, and they don't please the Lord. But this morning in the passage that we have here, Paul tells us a prayer that pleases God. And so as we look at this, may God use it to remove the blinders from our prayer life and give us a, a bigger vision of uh, prayer and expand the scope of our prayers. And so we're starting in chapter 1, and in verse 1, Paul says, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. And those, those four different words, we don't need to tease that out. Paul's basically saying everything that you can think of that is prayer, you should be praying that for all people. Now for context... So let's recall what we've already learned about 1 Timothy as we went through this letter. So who wrote, who wrote the letter? This is Paul. Yeah, this is the audience participation portion of the program. Paul, who's he writing to? Timothy, that's right. Yeah, where's Timothy? In, in Ephesus. Uh, why is he in Ephesus? Why did Paul leave him there? Do we know from chapter 1? Well, he, he left him to go, because Paul's traveling to go to Macedonia, but he left Timothy with a certain charge. If you go back and look in verse 3, Paul says, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, 
remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. So if you remember, we've been talking about that there was some false teaching in the church of Ephesus, and Paul has left Timothy there to straighten this out, to correct this false teaching. Uh, he says in verse 8, to wage good warfare. We've talked about there was a lot of speculations and there was some dissension, and he wants Paul uh, Timothy to put this in order and correct this. There's vain discussions. Pastor talked about back in, in chapter 1, verse 6, uh, arguments about myths and genealogies. There are people in that church that Paul says uh, act like teachers, but they're ignorant about what they're talking about. Uh, people who are misusing the law, chapter 1, verse 8. Um, people who are teaching the law probably to teach salvation by works of the law instead of by faith in Christ. Um, so the theology is, is messed up and needs to be corrected. And Timothy has to correct this by rebuking wrong teachers and by teaching right theology. And then, he, then Paul's going to give him instructions in the letter about developing leaders, elders and deacons, and about bringing the church to order. But before any of that, Paul says, first of all, I want you to pray. He puts prayer down to Timothy as the first thing that he wants the church to be doing. And this is really a passage about corporate prayer, prayer in the church. Pray, he says. Before feeding the flock, pray. Before confronting false teachers, pray. Before raising up elders and selecting deacons, pray. Pray, first of all. Why? Philip Graham Riken has a, a good quote on prayer where he talks about the primacy of prayer. He says, he says, why does it all depend on prayer? Why does it make the difference between victory and defeat? The answer is that God is the victory between victory and defeat. And it is by prayer that we depend upon him to win the battle. The victory depends on prayer because ultimately the victory depends on God. In prayer, we acknowledge our absolute dependence on God to conquer the enemies of our faith. And that last sentence is, the, is exactly the charge that Paul has given to Timothy, to conquer the enemies of the faith. And the first step in that direction is church-wide unity in prayer. This applies to us the same as it does to Timothy. Nothing we can do is more important than the pursuit of God in prayer. God is glorified by what he accomplishes in response to our prayers. We're glorified by the things we do apart from prayer on our own, but God is glorified by the things that we come to him and beg of him and say, we cannot do this without you, God, do it through us by your grace and mercy and that glorifies the Lord if we pray little then we give little glory to God our, our failure to pray and we all confess that we fail to pray at times failure to pray is like looking through binoculars backwards our vision of God is diminished and we magnify ourselves when we fail to pray we demonstrate that we're satisfied with our own wisdom and we're, we're, we're comfortable with our own abilities and we're confident in our own strength. And that's the greatest danger, really, 
It's not that we may fail apart from prayer. It's that we might find some success apart from prayer and be confident in ourselves apart from God. For without prayer, we may succeed to the maximum of our ability and the minimum of God's power and blessing in our life. How pitiful is a life of so-called victories that are achieved entirely apart from the power of God. There's many churches that are ministering that way. We want to, we want to see greater things. We want to see the victories only God can bring. So church, we can do good things together, or we can ask God to do impossible things, right, that only he can do through us. Let's expand our vision beyond our own ability. When Paul wrote the letter to the church of Ephesus, uh, he included this quote, which is the beginning of chapter 4, Ephesus, um, Ephesians 4. He said, Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church, in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. So let us pray with that vision. Let us make our mission and our ministry flow out of our prayers to God for his will to be done and his kingdom to come by his power at work within us so that he gets the glory for everything that we do. And so as we look at this passage, as we move forward, there's three ways that uh, I want to point out this passage helps expand our vision of God. So the three ways that this can help us expand our vision of God, number one, is to, to lead us to look up and worship the God to whom we pray, to give us a grander vision of God. This passage is really about worship. Verse 2 shows that Paul has a grander vision than ours because he calls upon the church to pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We, we tend to be very focused. The things we pray for most are things in our life and things that affect us. Paul's praying for kings. He's praying for nations. In that, in that LifeWay survey I mentioned, anyone want to guess what percent of people said they regularly pray for government leaders? Take a, take a guess. What's that? One percent is a little higher, but it was 12. Twelve percent of people who regularly pray say that they pray for government leaders. And it's commanded in Scripture. It's commanded in, in Scripture. We don't, we don't do well with that. Even when we do, we're kind of picky about which government leaders we want to pray for. Uh, we want to pray for the Christian leaders. When Paul wrote this, there wasn't a Christian leader in the entire world of any government at all. The emperor, during the time that Paul wrote this, was Nero who later put Peter and Paul to death. 
But Paul's saying, hey, pray for him. Why? He, said, he says the first reason is so that the church may lead a peaceful and quiet life, be godly and dignified in every way. So I want you to see Paul's vision of prayer rests on a sovereign God who controls everything. He knows, Paul knows Proverbs 21.1, which says the, the king's heart is a stream of water in a channel, and he turns it wherever he wills, like a river, right? So in other words, Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't have the vision that, hey, we need Christian leaders to do what God wants. Paul understands that, no, God can do what he wants through any leader at all. I remember our study of Daniel, right? Nebuchadnezzar. And God moved that brother's heart wherever he wanted it to go, right? And largely through the prayers of people like, like Daniel who were consistently praying throughout that book. So in prayer, like we need to remember, we have access to the king of kings, through the Lord of, of all governors, all presidents, all mayors. We should pray for those people. We should ask God to give them peace, right? Because we learned, we went through Daniel, Shane quoted Jeremiah 29, 7 that says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for by its welfare you will find your welfare, right? Like if we live in a country that's doing well, we do well. We want that. And we're, we're blessed to have that. A lot of places that the gospel is going forth, those countries are hostile to the church, they're hard places. They're poor places. We should pray for those places. We should, we should pray for the leaders of Romania so that the church in Romania might do well. Like, our God has that kind of power, right? I mean, when we come to him in prayer, we need to be, you know, thinking that this is the creator of the entire world, and he runs the universe. And so we can, we can talk to him about those things. How many of you, if you if said or wish you had five minutes with the president, you know, to tell you, tell him what you know you think should be being done in this country? Well, you've got all all the time that you want with the God who controls the heart of the president. So we want our country to be more godly. We want peace. We want freedom of religion. I mean, God controls these things. So let's plead with Him in that way. Mary, Queen of Scots, once said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. We should have that attitude about prayer. Hey, we, should, we should pray for our community. We should pray that Mumford Recreation wouldn't schedule games on Wednesdays and Sundays. We should. So our students can worship and students of, of churches can, can worship on Wednesdays and Sundays. We should pray that the government is good to the church. So, so let's pray that Christians can live peaceful and quiet lives, as Paul says here. And, and when he says that, he doesn't just mean a, a middle-class life of ease and comfort, just minding our own business. Uh, we know Paul didn't live that life, right? Uh, he says in 2 Timothy 
3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So Paul knows that we're going to have trouble. Even in this church of Ephesus, when he was there and preaching, uh, his disciples were seized by people who were upset because they thought that they were speaking out against the great god Artemis, the idol of that city, and they seized them and probably would have put them to death. Do you know who got the men freed? It was the town clerk. One of the government officials spoke up and got the men released. And so, you know, that's Paul's history, right, of knowing, like, hey, pray for these leaders because they may have lives in their hands. Pray that God would move them to do the right thing. He understands the importance of praying for people in high position. The second reason to pray uh, in this verse, Paul says in verse 3, is, is it is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So look, praying for pagans is pleasing to God. Like we should pray for pagan leaders. That's okay. Like you don't have to pray for just the Christian uh, leaders. It's okay to pray for lost politicians. God wants us to do that. It pleases him. Pray for all. That's pleasing to God. Why is that pleasing to God? Paul tells us because he desires all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. And this brings us to the next area of focus. I want to direct our minds as we pray, and that is to look out and witness to the world that needs prayer. So our first and primary focus is we look up and we worship God in our prayers. We recognize him as sovereign. But then that doesn't, that doesn't turn us immediately to think about praying for our own concerns. But, but it's the second commandment to love others, right, as greater than ourselves that leads us to look out and witness to the world that needs prayer. We need desperately to soak this in and meditate on it. I mean, honestly, and this is, you know, confessional. Like, when my life is good, I give God thanks for that. And when my life is not good, I pray that God will change it and make it good. My prayers are very self-focused. That's not Paul's vision, and it's not his hope for us, he is not so self-centered. When he goes to pray, he thinks through in this passage, what would please God? What does God desire? And he realizes God desires for all men to be saved. I should pray for that. That should be high on my prayer list. And Paul being a missionary knows that it's easier to evangelize when the government gives him the freedom to do that and doesn't, doesn't put him in jail. So he prays for peace, not just so that life will be easy, so that evangelism will be easier, so the gospel can go out. That kind of praying pleases the Lord. We should pray for that. We should pray that our boss at work would give us the freedom to share the gospel at work. We should pray that our leaders in our school systems would give us the freedom to share the gospel at school. And we should pray that we, should, we would be able to do this without harassment or offense or persecution. We should pray for the lost to be saved. In the survey that LifeWay did, that was one of the questions. 
How many times or how often do you pray for people who are of no faith or a different faith? Only 20% of Christians said they do that regularly. That's, that's the second command in this passage that we, we fail to do. We fail to pray for the lost. We need to come to this text with an attitude of repentance. Honestly, really we do. Look at verse 5 and 6 where Paul gives more theological support for his argument. He says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. In, this, in this, these two verses, Paul connects two words that are important to this passage. One is the word all, which is used six times in verses 1 through 6. And the other is the word one, which is used twice here in verse 5. And so what Paul is saying is, first of all, we should pray for all because God desires all to be saved. And his son, Jesus, gave himself as a ransom for all. At the same time, there's only one God, there's only one intermediary between God and man, and there's only one way for all those people to be saved. So in other words, Paul is saying God desires all to be saved. It's not a, a cry to universalism. God's not say, he's not saying everyone will be saved because the text says clearly God desires all to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Not all is coming to the knowledge of the truth. Everybody doesn't come to a knowledge of the truth. What Paul wants us to recognize is, hey, all the people out there who are not following Jesus are lost. I mean, they may be good people. You may have friends at work that you feel like, man, they're great people. But if they're not following Jesus, they need to hear the gospel and they need to repent. And our heart needs to be beating for those people when we pray that they would be saved because there is only one mediator between God and man. As Paul explained here, the, the truth that God wants people to come to the knowledge of, it's not just the truth of anything they want to believe or any truth. It's just the one saving truth. The truth that all humanity is sin and that all sin leads to death and therefore all people are under the condemnation of death. And to rescue condemned sinners, God sent his one and only son who gave himself as a ransom so that people might be saved through him, so that there might be a better substitute and sacrifice for sin. And he is the only one sacrifice in sin. And because God desires all people to be saved, he makes an offer of salvation to all who would look upon Jesus and trust in him instead of themselves to be saved. That's the gospel. Do you believe that? Have you embraced that? Have you come to a place in your life where you have confessed that you need God to rescue you and save you? And you've acknowledged that can only happen through bowing to Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. You can do that today.
You could, you could do that in, today in prayer to God to confess your sin and your need for a Savior to Him and beg Him to save you through what He's done through Jesus Christ, His Son, who died for you and was raised so that you might have life. If you haven't done that, I pray that you would do that this morning. And church, that gospel is why we exist. That's why we're here. Our, our activity needs to be about sharing that message with the lost and dying world. That's the point of this is verse. That the people out there who don't have Jesus or the people in here who don't have Jesus are dying without him. And so we need to look beyond ourselves and look out to a lost and dying world and lift them up in prayer to God. In verse, in verse 7, Paul says this is the very reason he was appointed as a preacher and apostle and as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And remember, Gentiles really means everyone who hasn't heard about God, everyone who hasn't had the message of God, every non-Jew in that time, but, you know, we're all Gentiles, really, um, till we come to faith in Christ. And Paul says, this was my mission. This is why I was appointed. It was, it was not for the people who knew about God. It was people who didn't know about God, who hadn't heard about Jesus Christ. And so Paul preached to the Gentiles under great persecution, under great suffering. He sacrificed himself for the lost, following the model of Jesus Christ, right, who left heaven and came to earth to sacrifice himself for lost and dying people. And so that's, that's the model that Paul is urging for Timothy and for the Ephesians and for Beaver Baptist Church. Not to be about ourselves, but to instead leave behind what's comfortable and what's convenient and to pursue people who are without Christ and without hope in this world. We are to be teachers of the Gentiles in faith and truth, just, just like the Apostle Paul. That's what it means to go and make disciples of all people. And so we need to look out and witness to this world that is without hope, without Christ. And lastly, we need to look around and love the church members with whom we join in prayer. And look at verse 8. Paul says, I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Let me give you a, yeah, just a few introductory comments about this verse before we get to its application. So first, it's part of a sentence that continues on into verse 9 and 10, and pastor's going to preach that message next week. And so we're kind of only borrowing half the point here. Uh, and Paul's addressing men here, and he'll address women in the next passage, and it's not exclusive, excluding any. It's not that Paul's saying, hey, men need to pray. Women don't need to pray. Women need to be modest. Men don't have to worry about modesty. He's not saying that. He's dealing, obviously, with their issues that this church had. And the issue that they had with the men clearly involved some anger and some quarreling. And Paul is 
really in this verse is a transition verse from this sermon, this passage, to next week's sermon, next passage, where Paul's transitioning from talking about prayer specifically to moving into a conversation about worship in general in the church and the order of that and how it should be done in dignity. And he's, he's saying that the conduct of the church in prayer has to be without quarreling and anger. And you can't come unified in prayer before the Lord if you're divided among one another. And, and this church had a lot of problems with division, right? Like they had people that were, you know, arguing about things Paul called myths or spun up about genealogies or presenting themselves as being teachers of the law, even though they were ignorant. They had two people who had, Paul said, shipwrecked their faith and been handed over to Satan. You, you think those people didn't have followers or, or friends who were sympathetic to their arguments? And so there was a lot of, a lot of backbiting and, you know, fighting and conflict and Paul even told Timothy to wage warfare he said wage the good warfare so like he knew there was going to be a fight so Ephesus is a church in conflict and Paul is reminding them and reminding us that conflict hinders our prayers conflict hinders our prayers scripture teaches men men scripture teaches that Conflict with our wives hinders our prayers. We need to have hearts of peace when we come before God in prayer. And Paul, Paul wants us to understand what's at stake here. People's lives are at stake. Lost people who need to be saved. People who aren't going to pray for themselves because they don't know they need Jesus. That's our responsibility is to, is to hold them up before God, to mediate to God on their behalf and pray for them. And if we're fighting, that's not done. And our evangelistic efforts are hindered by quarreling inside the church. And so Paul says he, he wants men to lift up holy hands in prayer. Now that's not, it doesn't have to be literal, that's the equivalent of us saying, you know, we want you to bow the knee in prayer. It doesn't necessarily mean literal. There's nothing wrong with bowing on your knee when you pray or lifting up your hands. That's kind of more of a Jewish custom than, than we would have. Um, but it's really a metaphor for having a clean heart and having reverence before God. There's a couple of verses in Psalms uh, that, that illustrate this. Um, Psalm 63.4 says, so I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. Psalm 119.48 says, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. So lifting up holy hands in prayer means I'm directing my thoughts and my heart and my intentions on the Lord, and I want what he wants. I'm coming to him on behalf of of his word, claiming his promises in his word, which I love, and asking that that be done. And we can't have holy hands in prayer if there's anger or quarreling or dissension in our congregation. These things uh, are much more likely 
anger, quarreling, dissension are much more likely when we focus on secondary or tertiary issues instead of our primary focus, our mission, which is to make disciples of all people and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we get distracted from that, then we'll get, we get focused on other things, and it can divide a church. It can take us off mission. There's a lot of, a lot of various issues in running a church, a lot of different things you got to work through, and so Paul's going to go through a lot of that in this letter with Timothy. And then he's going to write him another letter to give him some more instructions. But, but he's going to work through, we're going to hear a lot of things as we work through the rest of this letter about how to lead a church and organize a church and conduct a church. And all that's important, but we have to remember that what we do in here is for the sake of those out there. That, that's our mission, is our focus. That's what, that's what God's commissioned us to do, right? Scripture says that God gave even preachers and teachers to equip the saints. That's what we're doing this morning, to equip the saints. Why? For the work of the ministry. The work of the ministry is what? It's the Great Commission. It's making, making God's name known to the ends of the earth. And so we're not going to do that very well if we're divided. We're not going to reach many people with the gospel if we are divided. It's, it's remarkable how easy churches divide. I was talking with somebody just last week that, that attends a church that meets in a building where another church meets at the same time. So these two churches meet at the same time, the same place. They have the same, they're the same denomination. They both speak English. It's not a Hispanic congregation, anything like that. They have the same doctrine. So why don't they just meet together? That's because they don't like to worship the same way. They like different songs and different styles. Those are preferences in, in our hearts. They're not, the scripture's silent on that. So, so these two congregations agree on doctrine and theology and the primary things, but they disagree on things that scripture's silent about, and that's why they're divided. Those kind of things will split a church really fast if we think of ourselves before others it'll split a church really fast and the church of Ephesus struggled with this uh, look, look at this quote from Ephesians 4 where again Paul's writing a letter to this church and he told them he said I therefore a prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your one call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Do you hear the same repeated one and all in that passage as Paul has done in this passage? It's, it's very similar. God, Paul's communicating that we have in common one God, one Savior, one mediator, 
one spirit uniting us into one body. We enter the church through one common baptism to serve a common Lord, and we have one mission to take the one gospel to all who need to hear it. Let's not let anything else be a source of division between us. Let's not let preferences for what we do in here distract us from the commission that we're given to do out there. So we've seen in this passage three ways we can expand the vision of our prayers to look up and worship God above all, have a really high and grand vision of what he can do and pray for him to do that, to look out and to witness to the lost, to lift them up in prayer before God, to think of them before ourselves, and to look around our congregation and to love all who gather with us so that we can have holy hearts in prayer. And so as a way of conclusion, a pastor is going to come up and he's going to lead us through a prayer time centered on these ideas. The church, let's pray first of all, and let's pray with a grander vision for God's greater glory. As Brian said, just by way of application, we're just going to take a few moments just to pray. Okay? And, uh, Morgan and Jamie are going to help me, and I'm going to lead us. So as I, as I lead, let's just agree with one another in prayer. And let's pray together. Father, we know that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. No authority exist except from you and those who have authority have been instituted and put there in place by you and so we praise you because you are sovereign acknowledging your superiority over all authorities but father we're challenged and we're convicted this morning recognizing our lack of love for those in authority and we want to confess that today we want to lift up those who are in authority over us and so father we lift up our president who is put in place by you and we ask even today in the business of his schedule that you would put people in his life to encourage him you would put people in his life to speak truth to him that he would know you the one true living God. Father, we pray for his salvation. We pray for his health. We pray that you'd bless him. And Father, as he makes decisions, that Lord, he would have wisdom. You would give him wisdom. Father, direct him in a way that pleases you and it benefits the church. Father, for our congressman, Marsha Blackburn, Steve Cohen, Bill Haggerty, David Kustoff. Father, we pray for them as well, that you would bless them. For those that are in worship, studying even now, I pray that you would give them encouragement, teach them from your word. And those that aren't, Father, may you bless them and draw them near to you. Father, for our governor, Bill Lee, we are thankful for how you've used him 
even this last year, and we ask for blessing on his life. We're thankful for the testimony we hear that he has, and we ask that you would protect him and give him grace, he and his family. For the Father, for the mayors here in our county, for Dwayne Cole and for Stephanie Chapman Washam, for Jan Hensley and our very own Vice Mayor Jeff Morris, we ask grace in their lives, Father, as they make decisions, even this week, give them wisdom. Father, you tell us that we should ask for wisdom and you'll give to all without finding fault, and so we're asking on their behalf that you give them wisdom. For our aldermen's Father, as they meet, we ask for help for them, that they would make decisions for our communities that would benefit the spread of the gospel. Father, we lift up Lonnie as he works in that role that you would give him grace. Father, I think about Mr. Combs, the superintendent of our public schools, Father, and the pressures he faces every day, the decisions he has to make and the counsel he has to give. I just pray that you would help him. Father, that you would bless him. Father, that you would, um, even as he, he's in worship, even this morning, that you would bless them and teach them, encourage them. Pray that you would help him make decisions that please you. In Jesus' name. Lord, we want to lift up the lost to you as Brian said our mission is to go out there and to reach the lost Lord we pray for the heart of our church that it would that it would mirror your heart Father for the lost that we would have this burden for those that have yet to come to faith in you Lord I pray that we would get rid of this this self-centeredness, this apathy, or whatever else prevents us from sharing the gospel with the lost, whatever prevents us from evangelizing. Help us to rid ourselves of those things. Lord, we pray for pray that our heart for the lost would just give us zeal. And that we would be zealous to go out there and to accomplish our mission. That we would have zeal for local missions, for global missions. That we would support those things with our time, with our money, with our prayers. And Lord, we pray most of all that you would lead people into the knowledge of your truth. Pray that those around here that we have locally, that we can share the gospel with, as well as those around the nation and around the world, that they would hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And they would come to a saving faith in you. And Lord, we pray for those who have gone out, who have gone to the hard-to-reach places, we pray for the missionaries around the world taking the gospel, 
taking the, the charge, the mission that we all have, Lord, to those hard-to-reach places. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Well, lastly, I lift up the church, Beaver Baptist, in our unity, that you would draw us closer together as you draw us closer to yourself. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. And individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Lord, let us love, let our love be genuine and to abhor what is evil. Let's hold fast to what is good and to love one another with brotherly affection, to outdo one another in showing honor and not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit and to serve you, Lord, to rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation and be constant in prayer. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.